Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26 as we continue in our series in Exodus, uh, Free at Last. I'm going to be reading uh, about the dimensions of the tabernacles. You may not be able to visualize this, but still follow along as we read the Word of God. This is what God says to Moses about the building of the tabernacle. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops, shall, you, fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loop shall be opposite one another. Loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size, and you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that, that is outermost in one set. Fifty loops on the, uh, on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of, uh, of bronze and put the clasps uh, into the loops. Couple the tent together that it may be a single hole. The part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on its side and that side to cover it. And shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So you shall do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, 40 bases of silver. You shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame. For its, own, uh, for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under the one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two fr frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. And they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the uh, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them, they shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. 
The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold, four holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. And you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined uh, linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. You shall make for them Uh, Make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that as all of us sit under the authority of your Word, even the one speaking, we pray that you would do that work in us by your Word, through the power of your Spirit. Transform us, conform us into the image of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Whatever else uh, we may think of the specificity of the design for the tabernacle, one thing is for certain. The one who is designing and ultimately building this house is not God's people but God himself. Don't misunderstand me. God is graciously inviting his people's participation, and he will use the skills he has given to them to erect the tabernacle. But the final product will ultimately be his accomplishment. Remember, the design is his. He reminds Moses that he is to erect erect the tabernacle according to the pattern that he is showing him on the mountain. This means Moses didn't just get textual instructions, but was also shown a picture of what the finished product would look like. Remember also that the materials to build the tabernacle are ultimately his. The Israelites had plundered the Egyptians when they left, taking with them silver and gold jewelry, which may have been used for the tabernacle where gold and other metals were required. This is to say nothing of the Bible's proclamation that the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness therein. Remember also that the people are His. Their gifts and talents are not of their own making, but are God-given talents and skills. God Himself would declare this in Exodus 31, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. All I'm saying 
this morning is that the tabernacle doesn't get built without the Lord's hand directing every aspect of the work. From what is to be built, to the materials to build it, to the skill and intelligence of those who will build it, it all comes from the Lord. And what may seem like incidental information, we are taught, in fact, a valuable truth, one that the writer of Hebrews would later declare regarding our salvation, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. As the Lord builds His own house through His people and among His people, He's reminding them and us that He is the master builder of all things, that our experience of His salvation, His presence, His blessing is not based on what our hands can do, but on what His hands has, have already done and will do. And this is extremely important for us to get a hold of because that Babel spirit is pervasive still in us as a human community. We still want to build something great for ourselves. We still want to build monuments to our own skill and ability and intelligence that will rival God, whether religious and spiritual monuments or physical and material monuments or social and economic monuments or whatever. We want to be great and think that our achievements are rooted in our own efforts. But God wanted Israel to know that this was His house, that He was designing and that He was giving them the power to build. And if they are going to be gracious participants in that building, then they need to listen to Him and do as He says. And I got news for us this morning. The church, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf, is also God's house. He purchased it. He designed it. He furnished it. He inhabits it by His Spirit. He rules over it. He sustains it. He protects it. He provides for it. It's His house. And so how we build on what He has already done matters greatly. His house should look like what the Scriptures show us. God's glory should be there in the joy of His worship. God's love should be there through a diverse community of believers walking in harmony with one another. God's compassion should be there through the welcoming of the widow and the fatherless and the orphan and the foreigner. Indeed, what we are building on in the church is the pattern that God Himself has shown us in Jesus Christ. And this Old Testament earthly tabernacle gives us glimpses of what that building project was actually pointed toward. So what was that uh, what was the tabernacle's building? What was it pointing toward? What are we meant to see uh, in, these, uh, in these words in Exodus chapter 26, in the building and the specificity of this building? What are we meant to see? Well, we're meant to see, uh, first of all, brothers and sisters, that this is a royal house, that this is a royal mention of the footstool of the throne of God, the cherubim that are, that, 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 that are to be embroidered on the inside of the tent. Everything about the way it's being made is to communicate that this is no ordinary house for no ordinary person. This is the house 
of the king. The people of Israel above all people were chosen to have the king of all the earth traveling with them. And this tabernacle, 45 feet uh, by 15 feet by 15 feet, was to be a visible symbol that the king was traveling with his people, was traveling in their midst. They were, as Byron Cage saying, in the presence of royalty. They were in the presence of their sovereign God and king. And so the inner curtain made out of a pure linen dyed and embroidered with cherubim was to be covered with three other curtains whose purpose was to protect it and the rest of the interior of the sanctuary from the elements. And these curtains were to be stretched over that 45 by 15 by 15 wooden frame, all of whose parts were to be overlaid with gold and set on silver bases. In this commentary, T. Desmond Alexander says this in his explanation of the passage. He says, the portable sanctuary is appropriately designed to be a royal dwelling using expensive materials. The elaborately woven linen fabric and the gold and silver fittings are indicative that this tent is for no ordinary person. Everything points to the royal status of the one who occupies it. Thus, as you read this passage and see the care put into its design, as well as the expensive materials used for its construction, you are meant to understand that this is being made for royalty, that this is being made for the king. God gives us several ways of understanding who he is in relationship to us and the world, and king is one of them. The presence of God in our midst means that the king himself is with us, and this calls for reverence. It calls for obedience. It calls for submission. This is another reason that Moses is told, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. This isn't your house, Moses. This isn't the people's house, Moses. This is my house, so make it the way I tell you because I'm the king and you're not. That God is king in our midst means honoring him as, su as such with our lives. It means that we will respect him, humble ourselves before him, and do what he says. And my question for you this morning is, do you actually recognize God as king? Do you actually recognize that the one who is with you is actually the one who rules over all the world? Do you recognize that the one who has made his home with you in Jesus Christ is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And it ought, to, it ought to actually blow your mind that that king wants to make his home with you, that he wants to travel with you, that he wants you to be with him. And the call here is to recognize that the one who has built his home with us is the king. This means that we owe him our obedience as king. This means doing what he says, knowing that what he says is good and right. This means we don't submit to our own rules and our own wisdom and our own way. We submit to our king. And the question this morning is where in your life is the king calling you to submit to him, to do what he says, to walk in the pattern that he has laid out for you? as his people. Remember, the royal house is also the seat of the king's royal word. So, is it in the area of love for him, making him the object of our worship, or is it in the area of love for your neighbor, 
that you need to submit. The call here is to remember that if God is our king, no one else is. That if God is the ruler of our lives, no one else is. Thus, when the kings of the earth ask for our ultimate allegiance, we are not to give it to them, for it belongs to God alone. Every time the priests went into the sanctuary, they would be called to remember who their real king was and whose rule they were truly under. So who is pulling on you to give them your ultimate allegiance? Is it your political party, your job, your tribe, however you identify tribe? Brothers and sisters, we have a king, and he's Lord over all the earth. And that means that we submit to him and him alone above all else. Every time they went into God's house, they would be reminded that they were in the presence of royalty, that they were in the presence of the king, and that they were called as his people to submit to him as Lord and king and to no one else. It was a royal house. It was also an open house. At the front of the sanctuary was a screen that would hang from five pillars of wood overlaid with gold, hanging from golden rings. And this screen was to be the opening for the tabernacle. In addition to its obvious functional purpose of providing entry, the screen was a reminder that God's house was open to his people. While it's true that only the priests could minister in the tabernacle, it's also true that they represented God's people who were themselves a priesthood. For God had said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession above all the peoples, among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Thus, when the official priests went in, they were representing the truth that God had provided a way into his presence. And he had not just provided a way into the house, but a way into his very presence for once A year, the priest was allowed access into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, to repair the breach between God and his people due to their sins. And so he sent forth his son one day when he had opened the way for all who would put their faith and their hope and their trust in him. God sent his son who shed his own blood to open up that way. And on the day he died, the scripture tells us that something happened that something happened in the temple that was built to replace the portable sanctuary in the wilderness. On the day he died, Matthew tells us, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil that had restricted access to the most holy place was was discarded as, as the temple itself would one day be. And that veil that had hidden the most holy place from all but the priests was being replaced by the temple, as the temple itself would one day be. And what would replace it? Jesus himself would replace it. He said to those who had corrupted the temple's purpose, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now in him, what the sanctuary ceased to be and what the temple through its corruption failed to be, would now be made possible. 
In him, the door to God is open to anyone from everywhere, no matter their tribe or their tongue or their people or their nation. The door is now open to God's to God, no matter your past, no matter your failings, no matter your sins, no matter no matter what you used to do or, or no matter what you did in the past or no matter where you come from or no matter no, no matter what tribe you're from or language you're from. The door to God's house is now open in Jesus Christ. Yes, the, the house of God is a royal house, but everyone who has faith in Jesus is now made a member of his royal priesthood. That means that the door is open to you through faith in Jesus. The tabernacle wasn't a royal house with a locked door. God made a way for his people to enter through the representative priests. Now he has made a way for all of us to enter through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That God's hope, that God's house is open is a reminder that we are welcome there. Israel had not been welcome before Pharaoh. Instead, they were viewed as outsiders and mistreated. But before the true king, over all the earth, they were welcomed. Pharaoh had closed his door, refusing to hear from Moses again on the threat of death. God would provide a way through the priest for his people to be represented before him. And now in Jesus, that representation is eternal. God isn't Pharaoh. Don't, don't believe the lie of the evil one or the world around you. God is not Pharaoh. If our faith is in his son, the door is open. And some of you need to hear that this morning because your sins are weighing you down and making you feel like the door is closed. Uh, the, the only barrier is refusal to repent. But if you repent, the door is open. And if the door is open to you, it's open to all, no matter their class, their ethnic heritage, their gender, or the like. The priests didn't just represent ethnic Israel's acceptance, but rather anyone who put their faith in the Lord was represented by the priests in that house as, as, as a means of indicating that anyone who put their faith in God had access to Him. Jesus reminds us of this all-inclusive nature of God's house. And he tells us, Our, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The door now is open to everyone. I got one more thing for you. It's a royal house. It's an open house. It's a living house. Uh, In addition to providing protection from the elements, uh, the outer coverings of the temple are the only ones that are made of skins from animals. They are the only ones associated in that way with something dying. T. Desmond Alexander says this in his commentary, he says, closest to God comes fine linen, next goat hair, and then two different layers of leather materials. The layers move from a fabric produced from plants to a layer produced by animals that are alive to layers that are made from the hides of dead animals. The arrangement of these layers underlies that holiness is incompatible with death. God's house in the midst of his people should have meant continual flourishing for them. It should have meant, in other words, life for them. But you know the story. God's people kept choosing the opposite of life. 
such that God would have to plead with them, saying, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? O house of Israel. And so, in the very construction of the tabernacle was a reminder that the one who dwelt inside was unlike what was outside. He's not a God of death, but a God of life. And so, to a distraught Mary and a distraught Martha, grieving over the death of their brother, Jesus spoke these words before performing a miracle that would remind us all where everything is headed for those who have their faith in Him. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. To be a member of God's house is to be a recipient of life. Indeed, if we have truly been in the presence of God, His life should be reflected in us. That, that, is, that is, when you go into the house of God, which is a house of life, that life should actually be reflected on you and in you and through you. And indeed, if you've truly been in the presence of God, His life should be reflected in us and through us to others. People should see joy and hope on you. They should see repentance and faith on you. They should see the labor of love for others on you. They should see worship and praise of God on you. If you've actually been in the house of God, in the presence of God, in the one who is life, that life should actually be in you. And it should be reflected through you. People who encounter you should encounter you as a people who have been in the presence of the living God. I'm going to say it again. Like some people over here heard it. Some people over here heard it. Maybe the people in the middle didn't hear it. When you are in the presence of the living God, people should experience life through you. If, you, if you've been in His presence, people should know you've been in His presence because they ex- should experience His life from you. I'm not saying every day is always great. I'm not saying you always feel good. I'm not saying things are always going well. But if you've been in the presence of God, the people around you should know you've been in the presence of God. That is, when you're having a messed up day, they should know I'm trusting in God to lift me up out of the muck and the mire and to give me life. So, my question to you is when people encounter you, do they encounter you as people of life or do they encounter you as people of death? Do they encounter anger and unforgiveness? Do they they encounter injustice? Do they encounter lack of mercy and and lack of joy? Who do they encounter you as? Because God has chosen to manifest His life through you. I said it last week, through you. God has said, I will manifest my life through you. Messed up you, jacked up you, 
selfish you, uh, 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 self-centered you, he has chosen to make his life manifested through you. So, so if, you've been in, if you've been in his presence, all I'm saying is people should know it. Our God, our God is, a, is, a, is a God of life. While death is a real enemy in this world, God calls us into his presence that we might experience his life-giving power, that we might then express that in the world around us. The tabernacle wasn't just, it, it, it wasn't just a pretty place to go into. It was a place that they went into to encounter the living God. That God might give them power. While we face death in all of its many forms in this life, we are to remember in doing so that we are also the recipients of eternal life a life that will one day be experienced in all its fullness in the life to come. And so when we come into this house together, we can and should expect the life of God to be at work, to renew our faith, to renew our hope, to renew our joy, to renew our love for Him and His world. Outside, we will face death. But in God's presence, we will be given life. And so where do you need that life to be at work in you today? Some of you are weary. You feel empty from the experiences of hurt and injustice and grief and just general labor for others. When you bring that into the house of God, you know what God wants you to do with it? All of that grief and that pain and that hurt and that sorrow, you know what he says? Give it to me. Bring it to me. I will wipe your tears, I will comfort your sorrows, I will give you strength and peace. I want to encourage you to believe that God sees you in the places of hurt and pain and weariness and grief that you're in. He sees you. But I also want to encourage you today to believe that the God who sees you in that place that, that his promise to the people of old is still true for you today. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord, but they who wait on the Lord, they who expect that the Lord will be their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Why? Because they're strong in and of themselves? No, because their God does not get tired of holding them up. I, I love the old folks who say, 
he, he props me up on every leaning side. He, he, he holds all those parts that are falling apart, all those, all those pieces of me that are, that are sagging, all those pieces of me that, 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 that want to give up, all those pieces of me that want to throw in. He, he holds me up so that I shall not fall. Oh, man, I feel that. Y'all, 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 y'all forgive me for a second. I just want to worship the Lord this morning because I feel like that person who needs to be propped up on every leaning side. I feel like that person who needs strength because he's weary. I feel like that person who needs God to hold him. Amen, people of God. The house of God is a, it's a royal house. It's the house of the king. The house of God is an open house. It's a house that his people can enter into and find welcome and acceptance. And it's a house of life and not death. And you know why it's all those things for us today? Because Jesus died. He died so that you could have access to the king. He died so that you would have life. He died so that you might be lifted up. He died so that you might be comforted. He died so that you might be saved. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. In his labor, in building his house among us, and that it has not been in vain. For in Jesus, God has indeed made his home with us. And God's house, again, reminds us that he's came, that it's open to all, and that it's a house of life and not death. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you thanks for this tabernacle, which was just a picture, a glimpse of what you were going to do in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you now that the fullness of what that house represented, we now have in Jesus. We now have access to the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We can enter into the house of the King because of what he has done for us. And through him. We have access into life and not death. We praise you for that eternal life, which is ours today, and that eternal life, which you have promised, will one day, as the knowledge of you covers the earth as the water covers the sea, so will the life of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to embrace that as New City Fellowship. Help your people throughout this state and the city to embrace that throughout this country, throughout this world. May your people know that they are the people of the King and that life is theirs in Him. Through Jesus Christ, O Lord, we pray and ask this. Amen.